What a great word for us this morning, and it's true. There is one, only one, but the good news is there is one. And I think sometimes we spend our lives looking and trying to determine, but there is one Savior. We've been looking the last several weeks of uh, living a life of meaning, a life on purpose. And I think that is what many people struggle with today, is what should I do with my life? What should I do with my time? Uh, How do I make sure that what I'm living for and doing actually matters at the end of my life? And uh, that's really what we've been focusing on as we've been in a series called On Mission. But this is not just some motivational speech. It's not just based on trends and recent studies. We're anchoring our study on a life on mission in the true account from the scriptures. And uh, we're focusing in the book of Acts as we look at this true account of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke as they venture out on what's known as Paul's second, uh, second missionary journey. Paul and Silas began at the church of Antioch. Now, the church at Antioch was really critical uh, because what had happened is persecution had taken place in Jerusalem. And so they escaped from there and uh, into southern Syria, and that's where they were in Antioch. And the church was there, a very important church. Paul and Silas are there, decide let's head out on mission. They're commissioned to go. They travel across Asia Minor, which we know is Turkey. Along the way, they run into Timothy. They invite Timothy to come along. And so the three of them travel across, and they're headed to a certain place. But as God leads, they find Luke, aboard a ship to travel across the Aegean Sea, land on the continent of Europe, and they travel through Macedonia where they've been planting churches. Uh, We saw them in Philippi. Planted a church there, uh, all these new converts there. It was an incredible moment to look at that and see what happened, especially as Paul and Silas were imprisoned there, and God did the miraculous. Then they traveled to Thessalonica, because as we know, whenever the gospel's preached, it's opposed. And so we said last week it's like wildfire, though. They try to stomp it out in Philippi, and guess what? It pops up in Thessalonica, and all of a sudden people were converted there, and the people opposed them there. And they try to stomp out the wildfire, and it pops up again in Berea as uh, Paul uh, and Silas and Timothy make it to Berea, establish a church there. And once again, more persecution. And uh, we believe Luke stayed in Philippi, but uh, Silas and Timothy remained in Berea as Paul was ushered out as uh, far as the sea. And um, we know he's taken down to Athens. Now, I don't want this sermon series to become uh, just a historic review or a really fascinating Bible study, or that you get smarter about what Acts says, or who these people are, I want what we consider during these weeks to really consume us, to take hold of our hearts and our minds. Remember, Paul and his companions were just people. They were people whose lives had been changed, and they said, we have to go. We must tell, and so that's exactly what they do. The great layman and influencer over my life, Rick Milne, said Paul's life was changed And he went around changing lives. So if your life's been changed, all you do is follow in the footsteps of Paul and change lives as you bring the gospel to bear in those situations. Paul's focused, God blesses the efforts, and he's very fruitful. Establishes some incredible churches as the gospel moves around the planet. So we're studying this in order to say, what about me, God? What about us? What am I supposed to do? You've spoken into my life. I feel like I've responded. Now, what are you calling me to do? And I think if we listen carefully, we'll hear the Lord speak. And you know what I think he says is something like, but you will be my witnesses. Or go ye therefore. I think that's what he's still saying. 
to his followers today. So we're going to pick up right where we left off, Acts 17. We're going to be in verse 15 this morning. And uh, this is God's word. And so it's a true account. We can really build our lives on it. We don't just learn history. We actually find truths for our lives. But Luke um, pens this particular book, and he pays real careful attention to details. And so Luke, I mean, Acts 17, verses 15 through 21. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they left. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this little babbler wish to say? Or others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That's what they like to talk about. So Paul was living on mission in Athens. And the way he did that is he engaged with the culture and then he began to interact with with the people who came from all kinds of different backgrounds. And it's the same for you and I. We cannot be on mission by living behind a barricade. We have to be out in the culture. We have to be among the people. We live on mission by engaging with the culture and interacting with the people around us just like Paul. So how do we get started on that? Well, I think we have to take our eyes off of ourselves, which is where we tend to focus almost all of the time. Every single moment, we're just thinking about ourselves. We take our eyes off of ourselves, we see the world around us, and we consider the the lives of the people around us and what God might want us to do by being able to intersect with their lives. So we're going to look at the first couple of verses and the idea of living on mission by observing or, in fact, engaging with the culture. Now, first of all, we're not sure whether Athens was on Paul's initial uh, travel plans, his itinerary for this mission uh, effort. Of course, we know that he was totally derailed from it, but we don't think he was planning to go to Athens. It just happened. But it was on God's agenda, right? Athens is a couple hundred miles, 200, 250 miles south of Berea. Uh, We don't know if he took the road or if he went by boat, but he got down to Athens. And I don't know if you've ever been there. I know some of you have been to Athens, Georgia. Have you ever been to Athens, Greece? Well, uh, in Athens, Greece, I took a mission trip there with college students several years ago, and it was an incredible experience uh, because of uh, the, ex- the things you get to see. There's so much historic there, the art, the architecture, but we engaged with people there. And I'll tell you what, there's something critical that's happening in our world right now. Uh, there's this great refugee crisis, and uh, people from the Muslim world are passing through Greece in high numbers. Now, I know you're thinking in political terms now, the refugee crisis, but think in kingdom terms, that all of a sudden people from the Middle East are traveling through Europe, up across these islands and into Greece, and so we were able to interact with people from places in the world would be very difficult for us to engage with, with regards to the gospel. It was an unbelievable experience. Ada Rabin messaged me last night and uh, said, do you remember we went to, uh, to Athens? And I sure do. But Athens was the cultural and intellectual hub of the Roman world. 
to understand um, Athens in the ancient world, you need to think of like modern London or Paris or Rome or New York with regards to the cultural influence that a city has. Whatever happened in Athens just spread out to the rest of the world. When Paul arrives in Athens, though, it was not what it had been in terms of uh, population, in terms of commercial activity, in terms of political activity. The golden era of Athens was really in the 5th and 4th century B.C. This is whenever Socrates and Plato and Aristotle were in Athens, okay? And it was the world's leading city during the time. Its influence began to diminish. And uh, in about 146 B.C., Rome captured the city, captured uh, Athens. And about 200 years later, in the first century A.D., Paul walks into Athens. And Paul's visit to Athens is really the centerpiece of this book, the book of, Ath- of Acts. If you want to see, focus on the center of uh, Acts, you've got to read what happens when Paul is in Athens. And the good news is I can invite you back next week because we're not going to make it to the key part. The key part is a sermon he delivers there, and you'll have to stick around or join us again next week to hear what he says there. But as Paul has gone to Philippi and Thessalonica and to Berea, he's planting churches. We see all these people converting to the gospel, and they establish these churches there. But Luke doesn't talk about that when he goes to Athens. He doesn't focus on the converts. He doesn't focus on the church that's established. It probably did, but we don't read it here in the book of Acts. Instead, it's the focus is on a sermon that Paul is going to deliver, that's a message to the Gentiles, that's a really incredible thing. We'll look at that next week. So that's a big cliffhanger, I know. But as Paul arrived, we know he was waiting on Silas and Timothy to join him there. Big city, a lot of things to do, I need these guys to come help. We don't know how long it took them, we know they eventually came. Um, In fact, he sent them from there to different places. Uh, When you read in 1 Thessalonians and also in uh, 1 Corinthians, you learn what Paul did with uh, Silas and Timothy there. But Paul does begin his story and uh, his time in Athens by waiting on these guys to come. So if you're in a city like New York or Paris or London and Rome and you're waiting on somebody, what are you going to do? You go out in the city, right? There's too much to see, too much to do. So that's probably what Paul does. Walks to the city and it's a city that was known throughout the world at the time for this incredible architecture, incredible art. He probably wandered up to the Acropolis, which you can still visit today. You can see the Parthenon, this great temple to uh, Athena. You can see uh, the ruins of these sanctuaries uh, for Zeus and these other gods. You can see uh, all kinds of places where people gathered there at the Acropolis. So he probably went there, probably went down to the marketplace, walked along the streets and saw all these statues and idols that literally lined the sidewalks. One person said that uh, Athens probably had more idols than it did people at the time that um, Paul visited there. So Paul sees all of these idols. He sees these sanctuaries and temples. And remember, he is a strict monotheist. So all these different gods, it was just difficult for him to take in. Uh, Remember that, I mean, the great call of Judaism is, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So how does he react to this? Well, verse 16 says, His spirit was being provoked within him, as he was observing the city full of idols. His spirit was being provoked. Uh, If you have the New International Version, it says he was greatly distressed. That's probably too weak of a translation. Provoked is more like it. Uh, This comes from a Greek word, uh, paroxio, 
And the word means to be upset by something in a way that causes severe emotional concern. So the idea is kind of this sudden outburst of emotion or of action because of what you observe. So what we think is that Paul experienced this flood of grief mixed with anger at the same time. And I think I can relate to that. He sees these idols and he's just infuriated by it. Because he knew the Lord our God is one. And he knows he's a jealous God. And he doesn't like his glory to go to another. And so he's, he's angered by this. And at the same time, he's just heartbroken as he sees these people and he thinks they're so lost. They're so hopeless. They're focusing on the wrong things. They've totally missed it. And so Athens provokes Paul as he walks through the streets. So Paul came to Athens almost by accident, except we know God is sovereign. And we know that Paul is drawn to cities. That's what he's done all along. He's gone to cities. That's where he wants to preach. Because if you want to spread a message, you go to where the people are. Well, they're in the cities. And you go to influential cities so that your message doesn't stay right there, but it travels beyond that, that place. And so it only makes sense to focus mission efforts on cities as the Lord leads. And you know, it's no different today. In fact, it might even be more important that we as believers focus on ministering and missions within the city. For the first time in human history, nearly half of the world's population are found in cities. For as long as humankind has roamed the earth, we have primarily been a rural race, or an agrarian race. But now people are pouring into cities. In fact, one statistic says every 30 days, five and a half million people move into a city. We know that governments are doing that around the world. They're pulling people from the agrarian areas and putting them in cities. At this rate, by 2050, nearly two-thirds of the world's population is going to be found in cities. And of course, I'm talking about these great, sprawling megacities, um, like, you know, not Atlanta proper, but like Atlanta, the whole state of Georgia kind of thing, you know, just as it spreads. That's what's happening. People are just pouring in. And in fact, and reflecting on this sermon, once again, I found myself so grateful that this church decided decades ago to stay put in the downtown. As everybody else is leaving the city, First Baptist said, we're staying here. And for 200 years, this church has been a body on this block, proclaiming the gospel, discipling believers, sending out in mission work. And it's an exciting time now. I mean, before people were moving out, but now people are moving in. We have literal neighbors. It's an exciting thing to be a block off of Main Street. And I so look forward to, in my pastorate uh, here at First Baptist, the ministry and mission that's now possible because of what's happening in the downtown, that's happening in the city. In God's economy, there is a strategic importance when it comes to ministering in cities and really focusing our efforts on what's happening inside of cities. Because cities are where the people are. If you want to find people, you got to go to the city because that's where they are en, en masse. Not only that, inside of cities, that's where problems are. If you want to find problems, you're going to find them in the cities. Most of the pain and suffering our world faces is like is accentuated within the city. But the good news is, inside the city is where there are great opportunities um, as well. It's uh, really, so you have people, problems, and possibilities. Uh, the access to resources, thought leaders, cultural influencers found inside of the cities. That's why I'm so excited about what we're going to be doing missionally in, in the city here in Columbia. But not only that, uh, in the next several months, I hope to be able to talk to you about how we as a church 
are going to adopt a city in our country, a city of influence, where we're going to focus on with regards to missions, church planting up there, we're going to be praying for, because we know if we can reach one of those cities uh, that's an influential city, it'll really affect a whole region. And so we're praying about that and excited uh, to be able to talk about that in the coming months. But Jesus primarily ministered in the villages and communities around the Sea of Galilee. That's what he did. <clears throat> it was just inside of that, uh, the, the communities and kind of villages that popped up around the sea. That's where he uh, healed the sick. It's where he walked on water. It's where he preached his sermon. It's where he called his disciples. It was mostly out there, not in the city. But Luke 19 tells us of whenever Jesus comes into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry. We know he's coming over the mountain. We, uh, because we understand the terrain, he's on top of a mountaintop, a hilltop, down over a valley, and he can see the city of Jerusalem, the old wall, walls of it. In Luke 19, verse 41, it says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. He saw the city. He knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. But he also knew the hopelessness of the people that were there. So on that hillside, he cried for the people of Jerusalem, and we should see people around us just as Christ sees them. And our hearts should be stirred to action as well. Well, Paul does not live the life as a hermit, uh, protected inside of some cathedral or behind walls. Paul, as an ambassador for Christ, steps into the world and engages with the culture. He doesn't wage a physical war with the Athenian culture. He doesn't stage protests. He doesn't you know, organize boycotts. He doesn't set up a table and hand out flyers and stand on a street corner and yell at people. He doesn't do that. He actually goes into the community, and as the people are there, he engages with them. He finds them intriguing. And you know what? As you read the story, you find out they were intrigued by him. He enters into their world. He interacts with them in their language, and he engages in debates in their culture. That's what our world needs. Our world needs Christian thinkers who will dedicate their minds to Christ through various vocations. Teachers and administrators, nurses and doctors, bankers, lawyers, construction workers, um, people that work in retail or wait on tables. Need, th these industries need Christians who will be excellent in their career, but wholly committed to the Lord. So you can live on mission in your current job. That's what you can do. In your current responsibilities, you can live on mission. But you have to be intentional about it. It doesn't just happen. You have to be deliberate about it. Because you have to demonstrate the difference between following the way of the world and the way of the cross. People should recognize that. So Paul engaged with the culture. He's provoked within his spirit, so he deliberately lives on mission. In this passion, uh, passage, we see, see that Paul lives on mission by interacting with the people. Verse 17, it says, So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So first thing he does, he finds the Jews that are in the synagogues and the God-fearing Gentiles there. We know this is his strategy. Every time he goes into a city, brings the gospel to them first. So he goes there and he starts to reason with them. Just like in Thessalonica, he probably reasoned and explained and proved and proclaimed. That's what we said happened in Thessalonica. There were also God-fearing Gentiles there. And they likely responded. He then goes into the Agra. That's the marketplace. You can still see the ruins of it today in Athens. 
And one commentator writes, the Athenian Agra was the center of the public and business life of the city. And the people met there every day to learn the latest news and to discuss all manner of subjects. This is where people just went. You know, it's kind of like, um, I don't know where y'all go, the mall. You know, you go to the mall, shopping centers, it's like um, a town square or a city park. Or it's like um, the student union on campus or somewhere where people go and they interact with one another. And at the same time, it's that, that's where people are engaging with one another. So he began to reason with the people who were there, all kinds of folks. And his message was the same as he had preached in the synagogue except this. The delivery had to change because the audience changed. Remember when we looked at Thessalonica and Berea, we saw just how clear Paul was to focus on the scriptures. But here he is among these people who didn't know the scriptures. They didn't understand this Jewish uh, way of life. And so he had to find another way to reason with them, to deliver the message, to deliver the gospel. Eventually, while he's there, he interacts with these philosophers. Uh, they they primarily, belong, primarily belong to two different groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, we're not going to go into this. I know you're like, seriously, do we have to have this lesson right now? But I'll, I'll give you just a little bit here. The Epicureans, they were followers of a philosopher named Epicurus. And he taught that all there is to life is what you see. Everything comes from matter. So whenever, uh, all even human life, and when we die, we return to matter. And even the soul, if there is a soul, returns to matter. There's no life after death. Um, they didn't, they, if there were gods, they didn't really deny the existence of gods. But they said they're not concerned with human, humanity. You know, they're, 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 they're dealing with their own affairs. And then you had the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were disciples of Zeno. Great name. And the Stoics were, uh, they, they very much believed in divine providence. And that divine providence would lead you to ultimate truth, which you found within yourself. Does this not sound like the same philosophy that we hear in our own culture today? We're talking 2,000 years later. William Larkin writes... The prevailing philosophies of the West's post-Christian era, secular humanism, scientific empiricism, and the New Age pantheistic type of postmodernism, are remarkably similar to the Epicureanism and Stoicism that Paul encountered at Athens. In other words, there is nothing new under the sun. It's just the same things that have been said for 2,000 years are the same things that we interact with today. Now notice... They weren't immediately convinced. They didn't. We don't read about them being baptized, following as believers that way. What do they say about uh, Paul in verse 18? And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Babbler literally means seed picker. And what they believed Paul was doing was going around and picking and choosing the different philosophy that he believed and kind of turning it into something. They said, he's got no systematic approach to these things. He was just a babbler. He's just kind of, you know, dealing with things that he's heard and now he's messed up the way that he kind of spits it out. And on top of that, John Polhill writes, they could not understand Paul's concept of resurrection at all. Remember, Epicureans, they didn't believe in the existence of uh, life after death. And the Stoics believed that the only thing that existed was the soul or the divine spark. So 
nobody could survive death in a resurrected body. And in fact, if you, the way you read the passage, it says at the end, he's talking about strange deities. What many scholars believe is that they thought Paul was talking about some god named Jesus who had a goddess uh, that, that he called resurrection, or the Greek word, anastasis. So they thought about God, Jesus God, and anastasis God. They couldn't understand that there was some man named Jesus who was crucified, buried, died, risen into that same body. They, they couldn't understand that. Well, knowing that these Stoics and Epicureans had beliefs that were not compatible with Christianity, what does Paul do? Should he withdraw? Should he kind of refuse to interact? These people, they're just long gone. They're following things that, you know, it's just crazy. I can't believe they believe this stuff. Not at all. In order to live on mission, we have to go where the people are. Now, there is a place for attractional ministry in our world. We do it a lot. Where we have, uh, invite people, you know, those that are curious or those that are unchurched uh, or those that are non-Christians. And we say, why don't you come and join us? And we try to get them here to our block or to our event or to our activity. And there's a good reason why we do that. But we misunderstand God's heart for living on mission if all we ever do is gather as Christians and wait for the world to show up. Remember, Christ commissioned his followers by saying, go. I am looking forward to what I believe is going to be a great season at First Baptist Church as we engage in missional ministry. We don't just say, come and see. But we also take opportunity to feel compelled to go and do. Well, as you observe the culture here in our society, it would be easy to feel provoked. To, say, to, to have that outburst of emotion. I'm sure some of you do that. You know, you're watching certain things on TV and you just, I can't believe this, you know. Or you're scrolling through your Facebook, this is ridiculous. Have you seen this? And you get provoked, right? But I believe there's a danger there in our society. And it is that we turn to social media maybe. And rather than engaging with people, we just kind of tweet out there what we hate or disagree with. You know, we treat out, uh, tweet out our frustration. Or maybe we share some half-truth article that kind of aligns with what's been frustrating us recently. Or we like and comment on things that uh, just reiterate our grief or our anger. And rather than talking to people, we talk at people. Or we talk about them. But this world needs Christians who will interact with the leading ideologies and not withdraw or talk at or talk about a subject instead of talking to. So Paul was focused as living on mission. So as he was provoked, it stirred him to action. And so what about you? As you look at the world around you, are you compelled to go and interact with those around you? Or do you just retreat? Or are you too scared to engage? Well, like everywhere else, Paul is hauled away. That's what happens. This time the Stoics and the Epicureans bring Paul, not to be beaten, not to be accused, but they say, we want to hear what you have to say. And so next week we're going to look at that. This is the, the great sermon of uh, Acts as he speaks at the Areopagus. Now, we live on mission by engaging with the culture and interacting with people. It's so easy to kind of stay in our Christian bubble. We can surround ourselves tightly with other people that think like us and act like us and go to church with us. And we're around them so much that too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. The goal for the salt is to leave the salt shaker. Well, it's the same thing for us. The goal, goal for the believer, for the disciple, is to go. 
We are commissioned to live on mission. How do we do that? So we're going to get specific. This week, how can I live on mission? In fact, you might take note of this. Just three questions I want you to think about. So we can get real specific and apply this message to our heart. First question, who? Who is it? Who is it that God's put in your life or on your heart that you don't know where they are spiritually? Or maybe you're concerned about where they are spiritually. And you think, God, maybe God's put them there just for this. It could be a friend, a neighbor, a classmate, co-worker. I'm not sure. So who is it? Be specific. Second thing, what? What can I do about it? You know, well, let me tell you where to start. The first thing is to pray. You know who that person is. Now you start praying. God, what can I do? How can I be involved in their life? Write it down today. What am I going to do? Now, the prayers ought to give way to where you take conversations with them to spiritual levels. And you might sit down with them and you might encourage them. You might invite them to church. Or you might lay out the plan of salvation for them. But what are you going to do? And then the third question is when. We've been waiting and waiting, haven't we? There is no day like today. Don't put it off till next week, next year. You do it now. You talk to them. You make yourself available to the Lord. We're going to have an invitation. And many of you need to make a decision to say, God, here am I. What will you do with me? And while we're having the invitation, you just pray. And you say, God, here I am. And see what God might do. Some of you, today's the day for you to walk the aisle. You want to join our church or follow in Believer's Baptism? Our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Some of you, it's a time to respond to the gospel. You've been to church. You've read your Bible. But you've never said, God, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. So today, if the Lord's speaking to your heart, would you respond? Our Father and God, what a delight it is for us to worship together and to consider the truth of your word. Now, Father, help us to apply it as we live on mission with you as you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So right now, our choir is going to sing. And if God's working in your heart, you respond. Let me invite you to stand. The choir will sing. I'll be waiting down front. God's speaking to you. You come.